Welcome to the Review to Be Named podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me this evening on the show, we have Chris. Yo. And Sam. Hello. Tonight on the podcast, we're going to talk about... I always say tonight on the podcast, even though you can listen to this whenever you'd like, and we're not even recording this one at night. Um, but tonight on the podcast, we're going to talk about uh, news going on in pop culture, as always. We're going to discuss the cloud uh, as a concept and how it is affecting and may, may in the future affect our ownership and collectorship habits. And we're going to revisit the Rebename Movie Club uh, and discuss the film Dead Man. So stick with us throughout the hour. We've got a good show lined up for you. Um and with that, why don't we just segue right into talking about news from the week. One of the big stories that I wanted to start off with, uh, Vince Gilligan has announced that he is moving forward. Uh, the deal is not done at AMC yet, but they are moving forward into a pitch, at least, for a Breaking Bad spinoff centered around Bob Odenkirk's lawyer character, Saul Goodman. Uh, the details are fairly sparse. As we said, there is no deal in place yet. Um, nothing has been confirmed. All that's being... Uh, tossed around is that this is something that's out there this is an idea that's been going around for a while they're not really sure yet if it's a half hour show if it's an hour show they won't announce obviously if it's a sequel or a prequel because they don't want to let us in on what might happen in the last eight episodes of breaking bad but this is something that is at least being explored and it's far more realistic now than it was a year or so ago when it first started getting batted around so chris why don't we start with you what do you think about the idea of a Saul goodman spinoff uh, I don't, I'm not crazy about it if it's a prequel, just because I, I tend to just not really care about prequels to things I loved, even though, even if I loved them a lot, like, um, uh, I think the Battlestar Galactica prequels are my prime example of this always. Battlestar Galactica is probably my, if not my favorite, definitely my top three favorite shows of all times. And the numerous prequels they came out with to that show just could not get into I, I just couldn't care about them in the same way that i cared about that series um and i just think that in general prequels have a really big uphill battle to go through in finding a sense of relevance and finding a real clear reason for existing for continuing the story that really we probably didn't need in the forefront like my my new model that i like a lot more are these prequels that are almost just complete reimaginings like Hannibal, for instance, like I think Hannibal started its life and started its, um, being presented to fans as like a prequel series. But I think now it's more generally accepted that this is sort of a new spin on the Hannibal mythos following very closely to what, um, you know, from the movies, but kind of its own thing. So if Saul Goodman is going to be a prequel, I don't know if I'm that interested. If it's a sequel, that's a different story. I think I, I think I, that could be entertaining. Um, I, I'll, I'll say I agree with you on the idea of prequels. I think the biggest problem, especially if they chose to do it as more of a dramatic hour-long show, I think the sense of stakes would be hard if this was a prequel series. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of Breaking Bad's tension comes from, like, literally anything could happen in terms of these characters yeah. could die. Um, and especially, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, now it would surprise me because I assume that it will be a sequel series, and they're saying prequel because they want us to have suspense. But my assumption is now that Saul Goodman will survive Breaking Bad. Um, well, also with Breaking Bad, the assumption is with Saul's character that the the events in Breaking Bad are the craziest things that have ever happened in his life. Right. So if it was a prequel to that, it'd be like, well, it's not going to be Breaking Bad, and you know that automatically because I, I mean, at least I get that sense that like Saul hasn't been through something like this. Yeah, and also if it's like the the idea is that it's Saul's origin story. That's an episode. Like, get that's that's a made-for-TV movie. 
Um, also, do we need his origin story at all? No, I, I, I think we do. Think we do. Yeah. My thing is, like, they've made it very clear on Breaking Bad. One of his selling points is, like, Saul Goodman has never been to court. So it's like, it's not going to be a legal show. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, Sam, what do you think about this? Uh, I, I think I'd throw this in the, the pile of sounds like a great idea on paper that, you know, fans will love, but might not work out in the end. It's just like it's just one of those things that just sounds. Oh, wouldn't this be cool if they had more Saul? And it just sounds so great, and it it just reeks of something that is like it could only disappoint because it's going to be a follow up to Breaking Bad, and it's not just going to be a follow up to Breaking Bad, but it's going to be, you know, in all likelihood, literally connected to the show in some sort of way. And I think, you know, with those types of expectations, it could only disappoint, right? I, I don't, I don't, I don't see it. It, it, I'd like to see something from Vince Gilligan, at least, that's in a completely different universe. And I guess he's not definitely on for this project, right? No, I think um, the the creator of Saul, the one who uh, the person who wrote Better Call Saul, the first episode with Saul, um, is going to be the head writer and showrunner should the show go forward. But I think Gilligan would be around consulting and exec producing, and possibly even you know involved as a writer and director on some level. Right. So See, the thing that I mean, I guess I, it just it wouldn't be his show anymore. So I don't have it wouldn't be like the you know, I wouldn't have the showrunner loyalty I'd have if, you know, if it was him being the showrunner. I don't that's know. That's true. Very, 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 very wary of this, I say. Chris, you wanted to chime in? I I don't know that Saul is you can build a show around him, though. I mean, he's uh He's a very funny side character. I, I think if you put him in a position where the audience has to empathize or at least be interested enough that he can hold on his own show, I think you lose the charisma of the character. So I, I don't really see why this is a good idea on any level, aside from the fact that AMC is going to have a giant Breaking Bad-sized hole in its uh, programming lineup coming up very soon, and they're desperately looking for something to keep those fans around. Um. What's interesting to me, I like what what keeps popping into my mind when I think of this is like the Joey spinoff of Friends. I feel like it's Saul's like a great side character. He's a great supporting player. Fans love him. Everyone's gonna want to watch a show about him. And we all know how well Joey turned out. Yeah, isn't that like a isn't that a phrase now? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I'm sure it is because it was it's like the go-to disaster of a spinoff. Um, right. And I, I see this as, a, as in a similar vein. I mean, obviously, I think the caliber of people involved will be better. Uh, Bob Odenkirk is awesome. Um, and especially if they were to do it as a, as a comedy, Bob Odenkirk is obviously a very gifted comedian with Mr. Show in his background and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that's that's good. And I, I definitely think there's a way in which this could, you know, surprise us all and be a spinoff that is excellent. But I, chances of it being a disaster, I think, are much higher. Oh, yeah. um, and... It's just interesting to me that, that Gilligan's so excited about this because I think the only thing it can do is tarnish the legacy of Breaking Bad, right? I mean, like, chances of it chances of it being anywhere near as good as one of the greatest television shows of all time are not high. Yeah. <laughs> so I was I think uh, one of the – someone I follow on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, uh, pointed out, like, he couldn't possibly imagine Matt Weiner okaying a spinoff like this, and it just said something about Vince Gilligan and the way he's not – not as pretentious about his work, which I guess is true. But 
I don't know. Maybe I'd like it if he was a little bit more precious about Breaking Bad. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's like, I don't think it's going to, like, tarnish my own personal views towards Breaking Bad just because of that. I think it'll just be, like, a funny side note, like, if it doesn't work out. Yeah, I mean, I think in a in the sequels, reboots, prequels, laden era that we live in, I've kind of gotten used to just, like, ignoring things I don't like in any given franchise. Yeah. Um. I've definitely gotten better at that, uh, especially in the last few years when it's become something I have to do a whole lot more often. Um, so I guess <laughs> I'd be ready to ignore this. But I definitely, if the show does go forward, if it is produced, I will watch at least the pilot. Probably, I'd probably give it a season because, you know, I like Saul um, and maybe they'll get it right. Uh, so maybe let's wrap this story up with asking, will, will you guys watch it should it premiere? And how long do you think you'd stick on the bandwagon? Sam? Uh- um, well, I'll definitely watch. Obviously, I love the character, and um, you know, I'll watch as long as it's good. And if it's, I mean, if it sucks, I'll give it a whole season to see if it figures itself out. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Hopefully, hopefully, it'll all work out. I'm just, I'm just not thinking that this is a slam dunk idea. But who knows? Maybe it'll work. All right, Chris. Um, I'll probably watch it. I mean, I, I can say I won't right now, but that's probably not true. I watch everything. So. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably I just, stick like, it up. In my head, episode. when you say I watch everything, I'm picturing you while we're recording this podcast, just like staring at a Discovery Channel special or something. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I've got like the um, the Clockwork Orange style, like home entertainment system set up. That's <laughs> pretty much what my living room looks like. And your DVR, it's like when you when you look at shows to be recorded, it's like everything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's just in all caps and a lot of exclamation marks. And I, I can't even imagine the everything. capacity you'd have to have on that. Yeah, everything. Um, all right, well, that's a that's a tangent we don't need to take any further. Um, why don't we kick things over to Sam to talk about another news story for the week? Sure. Um, basically, in the wake of the latest Monsters, Inc. sequel, Monsters University, which I have yet to see, but I don't know if you guys have seen it. Jordan, seen have it. you seen it? Yes. Any good? Quick, um, quick, yay, yeah. nay, middle? It is, it's it's good. It is not uh, a Pixar all-time great. It is not Cars. So... <laughs> okay, well, Cars, was, everyone knows Cars is... That means shit. In right, Pixar and, and speak. when yeah. I say Cars in Pixar speak, that means, like, a movie that I don't know that I will ever watch again, as opposed to virtually every other Pixar movie, which is somewhere between very entertaining and a masterpiece. <laughs> don't, they, don't they have a film coming out called Planes? Uh, that's technically not Pixar. Disney took it over, but it is a Pixar. Okay. It is a Cars like spinoff. Well, I think it was originally going to be a direct to DVD, and then given Cars' success, they were like, "We're going to make it a theatrical release." Uh, that, right. makes that, sense. Is, that is what I've read. That uh, Planes was going to. Again, it doesn't answer my age-old question about the logic of the universe of Cars. Yeah, I think there's like a there's a flaw at the core of that movie, which is not true of any other Pixar movie, no matter how outlandish the premise. Like, because even Toy Story, because even in Toy Story, you could say like, well, in this world, people build the toys and all toys are alive. That's just how the universe works. Yeah. But who builds the cars? Right. And why? Who builds the cars, Chris? And uh, the there are people in that world. They're just all slaves, like just hidden away from. Uh, <laughs> well, that would be public. fucking fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that would be it. That see, that's a Pixar sequel I would watch. <laughs> It's like it's basically it's Ben Hur but set in the Cars universe. Yeah. They race people. <laughs> or maybe, 
You know what? If like the cars like fell in love and had sex with each other, that would be fine. And they like gave birth to baby cars. I still like at like least, I'd at have least that would explain. But I guess at that point I'd probably have to let it go. Where just, would, where um, would the baby car? <laughs> would just like pop out of the trunk? You you want to know, Chris? Yeah. Also, the the car would have to grow. So here's the thing: like in the Cars universe, there are cars that are like, oh, that's an old car. Like the Paul Newman car is like, oh, he's an old car because his cars. But when he was built, he was a new car. Yes. <laughs> yes. But he was never a baby car. <laughs> I like this new segment has quickly devolved into us just being like, what's the deal with cars? Um. Also, while we're on the what's the deal with cars, why does uh, Owen Wilson's car drive inside another car to events? Well, that's what? because that's what that car does. That's its job. Right, but like... I feel like there is actually only one job in the car's world, which pretty much any car could probably do. They've well, got, maybe the they've thing, got maybe, to have real unemployment problems because the well, only maybe, job is being a car. Well, maybe the thinking is like, because, you know, you think like, well, Owen Wilson could drive himself to the event, but yeah. but maybe it's kind of like, you know, when, when people go golfing and, you know, they can walk from hole to hole, but they take a golf cart instead because, you know, you, you save a little energy. Like, that golf cart is not a human. Yeah. The, the They're not like riding like, I, on a human. I yeah, would like hop like, on my caddy like, and ride my caddy to the next hole. Like, but that's, that's it's like the equivalent of like taking a, a taxi or something. Sure, except that again, like it's it's instead of like it being a, taking a, a taxi, I think. But it's like it's like having it's like paying or someone taking a pedicab, like, like a, a a piggyback ride or something. Yeah, which is which is by the way how I'm golfing from now on after <laughs> this conversation. Isn't it isn't it demeaning though to the car that has Owen Wilson inside of him? Yes, incredibly. I think it's a perfectly like, fine job. Is that it's a like, living, the is, car probably well, says after it's been entered. <laughs> All right, well, I'm sure we can fun cars for a while longer, but Sam, why don't we why don't we get to the story here? I mean, I feel like we can go into how like cars die and do like the cars bury other cars, or do the cars just like stop working? Anyway. Um, <laughs> so many questions. Because we all know the only way like, to kill a toy in Toy Story is to either blow it up or to incinerate it. Right. Well, the Toy Story universe is incredibly internally consistent. There are rules, like the toys are alive, they cannot be seen by humans, it all makes sense. Yeah, and and you could take apart a toy and put them back together with different parts and it'll still work, as we learned in the first episode. In Ratatouille, the rats talk, but humans can understand that the rats talk. Like, Ratatouille is is an internally consistent movie as well. Yeah. It makes sense. Cars makes no sense. Cars is like, the cars can talk, the cars are like people. All right? Cars, cars is clearly a movie that, that was shot out. Like, that's, at the end of the day, it's like someone thought we can sell a lot of cars if we make a movie where cars talk, and that was about as much thought went into it. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, sure like, like this conversation must have come up in a writer's room at some point, but by then they were just too far into it. You know, just like the solution was, like, they're they're probably like ripping their hair out over the logical inconsistencies, but it's too far gone. You just gotta keep writing. Just write through it. Just write through it. Just keep going. It's funny because I read at a, there was a huge um, New Yorker profile of Andrew Stanton when John Carter came out last year, and yeah. uh, part of that like a big part of what it went into is like the way the Pixar writing system works. And they have like as a studio, they have a very consistent way that they go about producing like ideas to screenplays to films. Like it's 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 very much a system that they go through for everything. Um, and it's it sounds like it you know it's a system that puts a lot of thought into the idea it goes through a lot of hands there are, you know there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen so to speak but in terms of like just a lot of geniuses will think about something and talk about something before a movie gets made 
Um, and so that makes cars even more confusing to me because it's like a lot of people had their hands in this and were like, this is a great idea. But anyway, <laughs> Sam. Yeah, let, me get, let me get to the second clause of the sentence I had before I started talking about uh, Before uh, I uh, cars. interrupted you. <laughs> yeah, you answered my question. Um, but I think P Pixar has announced that they're going to try to lean a little less heavily than they have recently on sequels, though they're going to continue to make sequels. But I think they're going to try to get back to making more original movies, which I think we can all agree is a positive thing. But in saying that, just quickly looking up Andrew Stanton's page, Toy apparently Toy Story 4 has been announced, and this was something that was announced a little while ago, but it still seems kind of vague in terms of whether it's happening or not. I'm not sure if you guys have heard anything uh, nailing that down. As soon as so, Toy Story 3 came out and was huge, I heard they were talking about doing a 4. Um I do not know anything more official than that. It's not. It's not, to my knowledge, got, has a, have a, it doesn't have a release date yet, which is when I consider the Pixar movies official. Though that's just like a weird thing that I think of. So yeah. that's not. A, that's I, not I fact like by any means. We can talk about how a Toy Story four would be a mistake, just because Toy Story three was such a good end to that series. Yeah, um, I think I think each Toy Story movie is excellent right now. I think three was a great capstone. Um, but who knows? They haven't made a bad Toy Story movie yet, so maybe 4 will be incredible as well. Sure. And in that, they're also making Finding Dory a sequel to Finding Nemo, also unnecessary. Um, so while I'm glad that you know they're taking they're they're taking a proactive approach and saying we're going to make you know more original movies, they're still kind of banking on some of these classics and trying to really, I think essentially just squeeze every last dime they can out of these, because I think they will make a ton of money and the, and the originals all made a ton of money. Um, but I think part of that is because they come out with original stories every time that are really, really great on their own. Right. Um, and you know, the second cars movie, I think made a ton of money. So, and they're a business and that's, that's the end game for them. Honestly, I think I think it's it's commendable that they are at least committing and saying like, hey, we're gonna do original movies. I think what they what they've officially said is they will go back to doing one original movie a year, and it's sort of a one and a half plan. So they want to do one original movie every year, and then maybe a sequel every other year is their plan right now. Um, right. Which, and I'm curious, like, why? I mean, maybe because they're doing it by what movies, you know, maybe the most profitable, but they're making a sequel to. Finding Nemo, and I feel like the one Pixar movie that makes sense to have a sequel is The Incredibles, which yeah. opened itself up for a sequel. And it's a superhero franchise, which also yeah. makes it very easy for a sequel. And that's the one Pixar movie that they're not sequelizing. I think I The Incredibles wasn't as successful as the others. Yeah. I think. Well, I, I think that's what it comes down to, which is unfortunate because The Incredibles was incredible. It was a yeah. great superhero movie on its own, let alone a great you know, Disney Pixar movie. It was yeah. a really good I movie. I still feel like it's the best Fantastic Four movie I will ever see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is a Fantastic Four movie. And um, it's a great one. I just uh, pray to God that they're not going to make a Wally sequel because Wally is like this perfect little movie. I think the best, I still think it's the best Pixar movie they've made. Um, um, I think I think it's either Wally 
I don't know. I'm very partial to Up. It's hard. It's hard for me to to put anything above Up. I think I think that's my favorite. Um, I think. Well, that I mean that just speaks to the quality of Pixar. I think the you know you can say that Pixar has made maybe the five best animated movies of the last twenty years. Oh yeah. I mean maybe even more than the five best. Like if we were to make a list, it it might be you know the ten best animated movies of the last twenty years. Sure. Um, and I, I'm glad that they're going back to to originals because I hope to see more of that from them. Although, you know, Brave didn't light my hair on fire. Um, I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna win everyone. Like, no, I, I still always... see Brave, but the the worst I heard from Brave was it just didn't do a lot for people. Like that's it was a good. It was movie. not Cars. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good movie. Uh, it just wasn't a Pixar masterpiece in my mind. Um. And I think, Sam, you and I were talking about this back at the dawn of Review Be Named. One of the first movies we reviewed for the site was up. Um, and I think we were both saying, you know, Pixar has a, basically a perfect track record, and it's going to have to stop at some time. Mm-hmm. I think we've reached that time. I think we've reached a point where Pixar doesn't always make, you know, stellar, instantly classic movies. But they're still good movies. Yeah. And, I, I think any time a Pixar movie is announced, it's something to talk about. And, yeah, because... like, it's the only studio where I will see every movie they release. <laughs> Well, the, the worry for me is, and I guess they were trying to nip this in the bud with this sequel original movie announcement, is that I feel when you look at um, Disney animated movies before Pixar kind of came onto the scene, you know, there was a time in the 90s where it looked like Disney was on this amazing run where every animated movie they spit out was a classic, and it really was at a certain point. But it also got to a certain point where they were banking on, not unlike Pixar is starting to do now, the the success of those animated movies. And then you'd see uh, Disney animated movies come out with a lot of sequels to a lot of the classics. I mean, there were sequels to The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, multiple sequels. Yeah. And, that was that was all directed DVD, then, though, wasn't it? Yeah, all, yeah almost all the Disney sequels were directed DVD. VHS. I think almost all of them were. Um, but, but the problem with that is it kind of, it kind of, um, diluted the brand a little bit. And I think it really hurt Disney animation in that they're kind of just starting to pull out of it now. I mean, they really needed Pixar to come in and make and go on their own string of huge, huge hits because Disney animation was in big trouble. I mean, Brother Bear, et cetera, from like those those kind of late 90s, early 2000s Disney animated movies that just weren't hitting. And Disney Animation had its, I think it's probably biggest success to date outside of Pixar with um, Wreck-It Ralph, which was a really good movie, I thought. Yeah, I thought Wreck-It Ralph um, was excellent. But, but for, the, for the last decade or so, Disney Animation has really leaned on Pixar. And, of course, the worry is... Maybe these movies will make a ton of money, but I'm worried that they're going to lean too heavily on this and just go, we're going to make bank on the next Finding Nemo movie. Because I think after Finding Nemo came out, I think Finding Nemo became the highest grossing animated movie ever, I think. Yeah, uh, um, I believe that's right. And I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that record's been passed by now with 3D and stuff jacking up ticket prices. I mean, maybe Cars 2 is the highest now. But they're able to lean on something where they they are guaranteed to make hundreds of millions of dollars on the next Finding Nemo movie. No doubt. I'm going to see it. You're going to see it. People who care a lot less about the quality of Pixar movies are going to see it. And I'm afraid that 
maybe they'll still make money, but maybe the quality will drop. And it might that might but, actually be worse than if they tanked. Because at least when Disney Animation tanked, they kind of had to look elsewhere. They had to turn they turned to John Lasseter, which I think was ultimately a good move. Um, but if if Pixar gets to lean on its swaps. established qualities, yeah, that's a problem. I don't, I'll, I'll, that's I don't definitely want all Jerry exactly. Bruckheimer movies. And you know? I mean, you're dead on in terms I don't of like five it, Pirates movies. You're you're dead on in but terms I, of it damages the brand. <laughs> I, I think it does damage the brand. I think that is a worry. But at the same time, I, I think if you look at maybe the past year and a half as being the weakest point in, I think, Pixar's history, what I saw was a lot of other studios really stepping up their game. Like Disney animation itself had Wreck-It Ralph, which was phenomenal. Uh, did you guys see Paranorman? Uh, yes. I, I love that movie. It was I, a I very good was, animated movie, yeah. Yeah, great animated. Like, I, I think... Uh, in the year that Pixar was at its lowest, the rest of the animated studios really stepped up their game and put out some really high-quality films. Probably the ones that didn't really make anywhere near as close to the money that Pixar does, but I, I think a gauntlet was thrown down in terms of quality. And well, it'll think, be interesting to see if Pixar cares about that. But I think if Pixar was able to did. prove one thing, it's that there's still a ton of money in animated movies. Yeah. Um, and I definitely think... Part of, part of what's great about Pixar is competition. Competition is always great, and that yeah. that DreamWorks is hanging around, and Disney Animation is kind of getting in and doing their own thing, even though, of course, Disney owns Pixar at this point. Uh, competition is good. Competition will drive up quality. That still doesn't necessarily solve the, you know, Finding Nemo 2 problem. And, you know, of course, I mean, of course, all these movies, they could be great, um, I still I need to see Monsters University. Yeah, and it's like which I'm, I think will be the first Pixar sequel I'd see, I've seen. I because I didn't see Cars two. Well, you, uh, all the Toy Stories. Oh yeah. Uh, see, I don't even think of those as sequels because they're so good. And they're right, so and together. that's the thing is yeah. like so maybe, if, uh, if Finding Dory is as good as Toy Story two or three, no one none of us will complain. You know, they can make sequels till the cows come home if they're great movies. Yeah. Um, Monsters University is. It's basically every 80s college movie, uh, but with, you know, John Goodman and Billy Crystal. Like, it's... it's. Oh, well, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it, and it is. It's, like, it's a lot of fun. Um, I wouldn't call it blazingly original. Uh, I wouldn't call it a great movie, but it's fun. Um, and I do not mind that Monster University exists. Uh, but when we, get, when we get things like Cars 2, that's when I start to worry. Um, but the Cars franchise can always be its own, like, little incredibly profitable thing that we don't understand and I personally, like, have great distaste for. Um, and that's okay. I guess, at the end of the day, I think there's always a lot more fear about Pixar than, than is warranted because they've really, like, they haven't really made bad movies yet. I mean, Cars and Cars 2 don't do anything for me. But otherwise, like, all their movies are good to amazing. Um, so, what? Yes, I was agreeing with you. I oh. know it's strange. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, so I guess maybe the way to, to end off this longer than it should have been probably Pixar news story is to say we 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 all probably shouldn't be as worried. Um, and I hope for the best. And obviously, as Pixar keeps releasing movies, we're going to talk about them on the podcast. There, we'll be talking about them on the website. Um, so I'm sure the discussion of Pixar and its success rate with sequels is not dead here. Um, but Chris, I want to toss things over to you for your news story. 
so I want to talk about uh, the Image Expo, which happened this past week. Um, as most of you know, Image is one of the biggest uh, publishers of independent comic books, uh, creator-owned books. Uh, and the Image Expo is sort of their um, alternative programming to San Diego Comic-Con, where for one day of the year, they can just have the spotlight away from uh, Marvel and DC and all the TV uh, entities that have kind of taken over San Diego and just really have the focus on uh, the image brand and the exciting new things that is happening from image throughout the year. So uh, a couple interesting books were announced. Um, I, I'm just going to touch on a few of them. Uh, uh, Ed Brubaker has a new book coming out from image uh, later next year, a series called velvet, which is going to be um, sort of espionage based. Uh, it sounds very cool. sounds right up his alley. Um, got a new book from Jason Aaron coming out. Um, and, uh, what else? Um, yeah, I, I think those were, uh, th there were more books announced, but I think the really big announcement that came out of the image expo was the idea that image is going to start on its website, uh, selling their books digitally as, uh, PD PDF files or EPUB or just basically any other format that you would prefer but this is a huge divergence from what the digital comics market share is right now, which is all DRM files mostly sold through the Comixology app or the Comixology platform. Um, and basically the way it works is kind of how it works with like all the cloud music and that you don't really own your comics anymore. They're just in this database. And once you, pur you purchase the right to have access to them. But if you really look through like the terms and agreements, pretty much the same way it is for like digitally downloaded song files now is you don't necessarily own these things. You can't really have like an actual hard copy of them anywhere in any kind of form, not even on like a hard drive or anything. They're just these things that are out there in the cloud that you have access to. So I think image changing this model towards um, PDFs is something I'm really happy about just because it's like, I, I like the idea of continuing to own the things I love um, as opposed to just this. I mean, I know it's very unlikely but if something were to happen to the cloud, if like all my when Skynet launches, information, well, yeah, well, when this is an argument against all like the DRM stuff, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. And Image is basically saying we're not going to worry about the piracy. We want you to you, the consumer, to, to get the full bang for your buck. And I really respect that. And I kind of hope the re the rest of the comics industry will follow through. But what do you guys think a little bit about this wider idea of this, the DRM content? And d does DRM content concern you? Or would you like to see a return to the model where you actually have more ownership to the things you buy? Or am I kind of out of touch with what I how I view these things? Yeah, I think we can kind of shift into this broader discussion of, of the cloud, as we like to call it. Yeah. Um, Sam, what do you think about it? Well, well, I'm not like as into uh, the comic scene as you guys. Something that I've definitely been following is um, how this applies to uh, video games, um, and that this has kind of been one of the biggest concerning, uh, one of the biggest concerns in the game gaming community. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have followed the PlayStation saga. was was gonna not have discs anymore. Was the thing right? I don't really. No, it was it was the op it was. What happened was Xbox, the new Xbox, ah. was going to be you don't have discs, you just like have access to the library and you pay for access to the games. Okay. And there were all these like weird restrictions on sharing, and PlayStation didn't, and everyone loved that. And then a couple weeks after Xbox announced this and was getting killed, they're like, "Uh, just kidding, we're gonna let you buy the games." 
because they okay. I think they realized how horrible an idea it was. Yeah. And this was kind of seen with um, the new SimCity game, which is a game I was looking so forward to, which was riddled with so many problems because they made it an online-only game where you can't really own a physical copy of the game and you can't play offline. So you're always connected, and this, of course, leads to server problems. This leads to bugs within the game because, you know, there's so many things that have to go on you know, outside of your machine. And right. I think I think it's a real fear. I think it's a legitimate fear people have that, I don't know, when you buy something, you want to own it. When I buy a movie, I like, I mean, I like to physically have it because I can lend it to someone. I can physically hand it to them. Um, you can hold it. <laughs> I, I, I can hold it. I, I, I also like just, you know, I like putting it on my shelf. Um, but I also like not having to worry about there being some outside source that keeps me from being able to watch it. You know, they can say like, oh, well, it'll never ever happen where you can't watch it because our servers will never ever go down and, you know, there won't ever be a bug where you forget it. There can never be a technical glitch where my DVD of, you know, the first season of Doug will just disappear. And I, I mean, you know, real or not, that's a fear I think people have. Well, not even just disappear, but... um you know, be taken from you as policies change. And this is something that's happened, I think, with Kindle um, and some of the e-reader books where where they will decide the book is no longer available and just remove it from your library. Right. I think uh, some, um, a lot of online-only games, you know, after a certain number of years, they shut down the servers and the game becomes unplayable. And now they would argue is, oh, well, the game's been out for so, so long that not that many people play it anymore, but there are people who still play, but they're just like, well, we need these servers. So sorry, they shut it down. And then that game, that game is dead. The game you bought is dead. Essentially. What, what would be an example of something that I've heard of with that? Um, let me check. Let me check for specifics. I believe, but, um, Sam, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Cause again, I'm not a big gamer. Um, so I don't really know, but I believe like the DC, uh, online game that came out a while ago, like the DC Universe game, uh, eventually was shut down, like the online portions of it. Hmm. Um, I don't know, like I, I didn't yeah. really play that game. Um, I don't I don't follow, you know, if we had sure. John here, he would be able to talk, tell us our games editor. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like there was, I want to say Skyrim was a game that, was Skyrim the one that you, you always have to be online for? I, I should not be um, trying. I'm not sure if it's... It was definitely not my area of expertise. Yeah, I was gonna say I like everything I say about games is basically guesswork, unless it's like one of the Arkham Asylum games, or, you know, yeah. Asylum or Arkham City. Those games I've played. I guess I guess what my main concern is is I buy a significant portion of my comics through Comicsology. Now, it's not like even that Comicsology is a distributor for another entity like comiXology is where i'm getting this stuff from like i'm buying my comics through their digital storefront and if something were to happen to comiXology as an organization i don't know what would happen to my comics like these all these comics that i purchased i i don't know what would be done for me the consumer like would it be that model you're saying with video games where it's like oh well you've had these comics for x like we're going out of business but we're not going to do anything for you because a we can't b you've had these comics for x number of years so we don't care anymore like that's 
I guess, my concern, which I think is a little bit more of a niche worry than, say, music. Like, I can't ever see the model where iTunes somehow goes down. Um, but Comixology, on the other hand, that's... I could see another um, distributor or another um, similar uh, sort of entity replacing Comixology at some point. And if they do so well that Comixology can't support itself anymore, am I and all other Comixology readers just shit out of luck now? It's like, it's it's kind of a, it's it's a little bit unnerving when you think about like all these, this thing that I've spent a lot of money on could just cease to exist at some point. And I think it's for, for pop culture nerds like us, it's a bigger deal because for some people, even comics fans, I think it's like, I read the comic, whatever. But for me, it's yeah. like, I want all my comics, you know, when I buy a movie, I want, like Sam said, I want to put it on my shelf, you know. Yeah. I, I'm not just a, you know, a pop culture fan that like, I don't think my pop culture is disposable. Let's put it that way. You know, if I'm, you know, if I love an album, if I love a movie, if I love a book, even that's why I don't have an e-reader, you know, if I, uh, and I, people keep mocking me for that and I may have to, you know, relinquish at some point, but when I buy a book, I buy a real book. And when I'm done with it, it goes on my shelf. And like Sam said, I can lend it out. Um, but it becomes part of our larger pop culture collection of the things that I like and the things that I've bought. Um, and that the cloud, and I always feel like I'm 80 years old when I say something like this, but it, it freaks me out just because I no longer will have that collection. You know, as more and more things move to the cloud, it's it's harder and harder to have. First of all, you don't have the shelf. But second of all, there's no assurance that that you will have the things that you want at any given time. Also, I feel it, like wait, comic agree. books. Sorry, go ahead, That's Chris. Right. Well, I, I agree with everything you just said. But like, also, I think on top of that, what needs to be said is that um, this stuff isn't cheap. Like our entertainment is not an inexpensive thing. It's a thing that I think like we, as people who are like, love these things sort of make some sacrifices to sort of continue to support. I mean, this is not something like we necessarily need. It's like a want we're fulfilling. And it's, we as consumers are giving a lot of our money to support this. And what I like the minimum of what I would like to ask for is that the things I spend my money on, I'm able to revisit at some point if I want. Right. Like if I pay for it, to own it, it should be, I should be able to like, in some form, even if it's just this idea of like, instead of a DRM like file, like I get an actual PDF of my comic. I get an actual uh, .mov of my movie I download. Yeah. These things that like I can have and I know aren't just gonna disappear someday. And if you're paying, I mean, if you're paying $4 for a comic, which you often are, um, I think part of the money is, yes, I'm paying to read it right now. But I think part of the investment in that, or, you know, if I'm paying, what, 20 or 30, whatever it is for a Blu-ray yeah. that I buy, when I'm buying that, part of it is, yeah, I'm going to, I want to watch it like now. Uh, but a lot of it is, I want to be able to watch it whenever I want. Yeah, I want to be able exactly. to read that whenever I want. That's, that's, and that's part of ownership that I think is going away. Like, I don't want to pay for the privilege of uh, right now only if i wanted that i could you know you can rent a movie not anymore really i guess but uh, you know i can netflix a movie but if i yeah, want to buy it, 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 it there, there is, like, uh, sorry Sam, what were you saying? with comic books even more so than movies or um you know regular you know hardcover books there's more of a collector culture there's like there's physically having the books and you have your comic book collection and I mean, like people, I mean, people do that with movies too, but I feel like with comics, I mean, you get the bag and board for your books and, you know, you save them and you save the physical thing. It's like a real collection for a lot of people. I think it's not just, 
it's not it's not a disposable piece of media. Yeah. Let me ask let me ask Chris um, because you were someone I've never really when I buy uh, physical comics I buy them in trade paperback. I I have literally never bought a single issue of a comic. Um, So. I'm not too familiar with that and the shift because I've always, when I read uh, Comics Monthly, I read digital. Um, you you said, I think when we were talking about this recently, you were about half and half now, digital and physical. How have yeah. you made the calls which go digital? Why have you made those calls? Can just elaborate a little bit on what that process has been like for you. Um, honestly, because like for me, like the saving of this stuff is mostly just all about like, I really, there's, I, I really like to go back and reread this stuff. It doesn't happen often, but like, periodically I'll revisit certain things and I, that's why I want these physical comics, but well, not in some sense it's physical, but in order to your specific question, um, a lot of it has been based on this Marvel's policy of when I buy my physical book, if it's a $4 book, I also get the free DRM download. And that I'm fine with actually, like that's a model. If everybody was accepted universally, I think I would be more okay with this idea of the digital download. If it's a part included part and parcel with the price of my book, is also a free digital copy that I can have access to anywhere, that'd be great. So a lot of the Marvel comics that I get a free digital copy of with two, I'm still buying as physical books because it's the best of both worlds. It's that portability and easy access I like of digital comics, along with the idea of I'm still buying some physical books. I still like, you know, having them around, having them on my shelf, just having them in the bags and boards to just look back on at some point, as Sam was saying. Um, and I guess with a few a lot of other books, it's basically just uh the decision comes down to um i'm just running out of space for these things so i i've switched a lot over to digital so really if it's not a book where i can get a digital copy free along with it, it will it'll usually be an image book because image um puts a lot more care and thought into like how their books are designed like um for instance i i think a book that you also read jordan east of west um yeah. i i just think that the the colors and the line work Dragota uses on that paper stock just really make that art pop. And I, I I really like having that book as a physical book because it's like the weight of the paper quality there just really, I think, adds to the whole experience that Hickman and Dragota are trying to create there. So I think there are like I, I look at so I don't really care for DC as much like because their books kind of all like look and feel the same. But image sometimes really puts a little extra design work into their book. So sometimes I think I really like having a physical image comic because they're not just like all made of the same paper stock and quality. There's a little bit something different to a lot of them. Sure. And I think, I think East and West especially um, is a book that I will be buying in trade just because I, you know, I read digitally and I think it is a book that will probably look better on the page. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, this is not a new issue, uh, and I think it's going to be a bigger issue in the years to come as more and more things become only digital. Um, I think Xbox is doing like what Xbox was doing is something that maybe is too ahead of its time and freaks people out. But I imagine that's the way that most things will go eventually, um, and that's something that that worries me. Um, but Xbox abandoned it because there is such a blowback against it. So do you think maybe that that'll shut it down? I mean. Do you think we will never go I don't to know a if point? I mean, clearly, you know, they want this to be the direction it goes in. And maybe it's a matter of introducing it a little bit uh, more gra- uh, more gradually. Right. Um, I think this might have been a shock to a lot of gamer systems, I think. I mean, part of the problem with the Xbox One, I think, 
they, they want the Xbox One to be more of a home entertainment device rather than just a gaming console. So they kind of want it to be connected to your cable and your internet, and it kind of does a little bit of everything. And I think the gaming community, which is, you know, I think their core, really turned against them, and especially with the, the DRM, or, you know, they're not... No, no company will call what they're doing a DRM ever, because that's like that's like saying like we're Nazis to like a lot of these people. It is it is like saying the worst possible thing to I think a large group of these fan base. It's the worst thing you can say. So they'll never yeah. ever call anything a DRM. Um. So I don't know. I think I mean we're gonna we're going there. We're gonna get, we're gonna be all digital at some point. It's just. Yeah, well, I think I, it's gonna have to it's gonna have to be gradual. I think for the masses to kind of learn to accept it. I think it's analogous to Netflix, um, which is very, very, very openly trying to go strictly watch instantly. Um, and I am fighting against that idea tooth and nail as a consumer because I love the discs um, because the selection is wider. You know, I guess I wouldn't mind Netflix being watched instantly if it had everything watched sure. instantly. But yeah, and I think I think that's what they're trying. I mean, I think that's their ultimate goal. But of course, the problems with that are. You know, they have deals with certain movie studios and then there are your Hulus and Amazon Watch Instant or whatever that have deals with other people, which is kind of locking off certain content. Right. The worry to... the worry is that uh, Netflix loses discs and now I have to be a Netflix, Amazon and Hulu subscriber in order to have Watch Instantly access to what I had on Netflix disc version. Well, I think that's probably the direction that we're just going in. Yeah. And that I, you know, that worries me. Not crazy about that. Talk about talk about your financial uh, strain. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're suddenly a, a subscriber to three or four different uh, watch instantly on the internet services. Well, this Just is a crime. Keep watching TV. Old men. Um, although I do not think we're alone in these concerns. Obviously. You're gonna get snow and chats over this segment. <laughs> I will gladly pay for all of this stuff. Um, as soon as I don't have to pay for cable, or if they make cable a la carte. What are you gonna do about ESPN, though? What, what am I gonna do about ESPN? Yeah. Their ESPN already broadcasts a lot of things online, and if I can do cable a la carte, I can still get ESPN. I just won't yeah. need to pay for VH1 or MTV or things I don't watch, or the Disney yeah. Channel. Like I, you know, I won't have to pay for those things. Um, so you if I can pay for the, the Disney Channel. I haven't been. I don't know if they're actually. I actually might want the Disney Channel as uh, Girl Meets World premieres, and I'm sure we're going to cover that extensively in the coming weeks. I'm pretty sure that months. that that will be this uh, show will become the Girl Meets World podcast once that show is on the air. Um, we'll oh, just... we're going to talk about it. Oh, I mean, we're definitely going to talk about it, uh, possibly exclusively for six to eight months. Um, yeah, we will. If you want Girl Meets World coverage, listeners, this is the place to be because we are gonna we will talk about that next year. Yeah. And I'm off the podcast. <laughs> Chris is going to meet the world. <laughs> Chris meets world. That's the spinoff from Girls Girl Meets World. Oh my god, we yeah. should we'll do a, a separate podcast called Chris Meets World, and it's just Chris's Chris live commentary on every Girl Meets World episode. <laughs> you just like well, turning the TV on now. And Girl Meets World has started. Title sequence is the same, and it's just—it's just your commentary on every episode. I think From what I could find on the on internet, it. it looks like Girl Meets World won't debut until 
like next year. Yeah, so. 2014 sometime is I think what they've said. So uh, shit. How am I supposed? Am I gonna be alive by then? Even yeah, I, if then. the podcast still exists, I don't know. I mean, we're bi- we're living week to week here, guys. <laughs> um, well, I think we can shut down this curmudgeonly cloud segment now and move into the movie club. <laughs> I think Girl Meets World to Jim Jarmusch is a perfect segue. Yeah, how did, how did the sure phrase get, get off of space? Uh, what was how that? did space lawns not come up in that segment at all? <laughs> get off That's my space lawn cloud. Yeah. Are we going to want physical lawns once they introduce space lawns? Well, you see, the space lawn is going to be, you know, three-dimensional in a way our current lawns are not, you know. Yeah. The lawn will go... Will Wait, be ver- how are they going to be three-dimensional in ways that our lawns aren't three-dimensional? I mean, that you'll be able to utilize, in space without the gravity, you'll be able to utilize above and below what we think of as the normal plane of the lawn right now. You know, like the sky above your lawn will probably have to be part of your property. Although they're going to stack the space houses, so it's going to confuse things. You know they have apartment buildings, right? I know they have apartment buildings, but when you live in an apartment, you don't have a uh, a lawn. A space lawn implies that you're in a space house. Or you're sharing... Apartment buildings could share space lawns, I guess. But the space lawn at an apartment building would go as high as the apartment building in space. I don't know. I think we've gone off the deep end. (laughs) Guys, guys, I think we're going to win the potty for this one. That's the the Emmy for podcasts, right? I was going to say, I really hope they they don't call them potties. (laughs) <laughs> um, all right we we have to move on for the sake of all of our sanity yes jim jarmusch uh this one was my pick so i guess i'll run the segment on dead man uh the so-called psychedelic western from 1995 johnny depp plays william blake but not the poets um he heads out west for a job that does not materialize and finds himself you know losing his way a bit uh as a result why don't we start with you, Chris, and what did you think of Dead Man? I know you'd seen it before, as you mentioned when we announced the movie, um, and I know you rewatched it for this segment, so what did you think of it the second time through? Um, it's a movie that I think needs to be watched a few times. Um, I, I think I, I appreciated it a little bit more the second time I watched it, um, and I think part of that comes from having the benefit of having seen a few other Jim Jarmusch films in the interim between when I first watched it and this rewatch. Um I, I I think uh, also something that helped this time around, because I, I think that, at least in terms of my audio set, I think the audio mixing is kind of weird on the film. So I, I ended up having to watch on the subtitles because I've been blasting the air conditioner all day. And um, I, I definitely... I, I think you definitely have to like pay very close attention to the lines because like I think that's another thing I liked about watching it this time around is like watching it with subtitles I caught everything and um, it's I think it's a film that's worthy of study and your enjoyment of it is not sort of an instantaneous thing I think it's something that kind of has to sit with you a little bit I think it's something you definitely have to think about so if you like really like movies that you have to like let percolate for a little bit let um let simmer for a while i think uh, i think you'd be a fan of dead man all right uh thoughts. sam thoughts on dead man uh i i hadn't seen this movie before um and i really enjoyed it a lot actually uh i thought it was interesting how it was it was paced very deliberately and i really felt like it was it was oh buzz chris 50 yeah i uh, um, don't worry it'll be another five minutes before they find me yeah 
Um, but I just feel like the journey was so, I think, uh, Johnny Depp's character, William Blake's journey was so, I think, well charted throughout this movie. And there's such a great transformation beginning to end, you know, a transformation like you see with, uh, someone like Walter White, except this is done in two hours because he's kind of playing, you know, this weenie accountant, uh, to start the movie. And he's kind of thrust into this, this dark wild west world. And he kind of, he kind of has to survive just at the beginning. It's about survival. And then he kind of becomes a force in it. Um, and people fear him and people know his name by the end of this movie. And I really love that journey. And, uh, I was a big fan of this movie. I, I, it definitely seems like something that, that I could appreciate more with a second watch just because I feel like there's a lot going on, but there's this movie, even though it, it, it was a little slow, it, I still really enjoyed the ride of the whole thing. And I really enjoyed the growth of uh, Johnny Depp's character. And there are just so many good little side characters that show up. This is, I think one of Ro uh, Robert Mitchum's last movies. And he was just a great it's his last movie. Actually, character. it is his final movie. Yeah. I thought he was just, he was great in this role and it's so cool to see him and just, you know, Brandon, uh, Jared Harris and Iggy pop and Billy Bob Thornton are in this. Movie. It's just, you know, you know, Jim Jarmusch just gets everyone to be in his movies, and they're all so much fun to watch. Um, and I really just like, you know, in a lot of ways, it's just uh, it, it it has a lot of conventional Western stuff that I think is is fun. And I'm not a huge Western fan, but I like the, you know, the three bounty hunters who are all very, very different characters and how they clash with each other while they're trying to search for Johnny Depp and how uh, Jarmusch does his own take on this, you know, mystic Native American character uh, who calls, who's called Nobody. I really like this movie, and I think it would definitely, it would definitely serve better with a, a, another watch, but um, I think, I, th I thought it was a great movie. I had a lot of fun, and, and it was also funny in parts, too. I mean, the movie definitely had a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll start, uh, my opening comments. I loved this movie. I, I mean, I, it, it's been on my to watch list for a while, which is one of the reasons that I picked it for movie club. Cause it was, I figured finally time to pull the trigger and make myself watch it. Um, and I'd heard good things about it, but I was not prepared for how much I loved the movie actually. Um, I thought it was incredible. It's got, it just, it, from the beginning, I it had, it, it's very, uh, very, you said a deliberate sense of pace, Sam, and I think that's exactly right, but really a very deliberate tone as well. Um, I feel like the first Open, the opening sequence of the movie basically operates as a short film, which is William Blake's journey out west um, and him on the train. And it's just a little various snippets of what he's doing to occupy the very long train ride out west. Um, and it's and it introduces uh, Neil Young's pretty like phenomenal uh, score throughout that sequence. And I mean, he scores the whole movie and it's yeah. it's got a it's got an awesome score as well. Uh, but it introduces the score and sort of introduces the the humor of the movie Um and also sort of the darkness of the movie with the, the monologue he with the other passenger on the train. Crispin Glover, exactly. And I just like from that, I was like, this is this is amazing. And the movie really took off in a lot of different unexpected directions. It's very it's very episodic, but not in a bad way, I think. Like uh, you sort of you go through these di different passages. Most specifically, I think like the, the opening sequence of the movie feels like a short film. Um the scene with uh, Iggy Pop, Jared Harris, when uh, when 
William Blake goes to to approach them out in the wilderness. Um, that felt very much like it was doing its own thing, and yet it's string yeah. it's strung together incredibly well uh, into this journey uh, and this transformative experience for the character as he becomes something very different than he expected when he headed out west. Um, so yeah, I loved this. Uh, it's the best movie I've seen in a while, and obviously I watch a lot of movies, so I I loved it to death. Um, well, you know, you're gonna see another great western tonight, Jordan. The Lone Ranger. I actually, I, I wanted to see The Lone Ranger before this podcast because I've read, a few things I've read about The Lone Ranger say that it cribs a lot from Dead Man. Um, and if it does, that excites me. Um, and I was, so I was hoping to see it before uh, before we did this podcast so I could talk about the way that the movie maybe does adapt or doesn't. But I'm seeing it very shortly after we finish the podcast, unfortunately. So all of you who care what I think about the Lone Ranger will have to go to the website uh, where I will probably review it or at least put up a few thoughts about it. Um, but yeah, I loved this movie. So why don't we, why don't we, you know, break out a little bit and talk a little bit more in depth um, about some of, I guess, Chris, what were some of your favorite things about the movie? Well, um, I, I guess just about just the expansiveness of just like how much of the Western mythology was covered in this area, but like in a way that, um, was entirely native to Jarmusch and the way he makes his films. Uh, I, I just loved the dreamlike quality to it. I, I liked sort of the idea of like, I'm not sure throughout any given moment in the movie, I wasn't exactly sure when, if the main character was actually alive or not. Um, I, I think the movie opens itself up to a lot of different interpretations. I think there are, it's exciting in a way that um, my uh, take on what was happening in the events is probably completely different from what you guys thought might have been going on at a certain moment. Uh, and I also will agree with you that I did like the episodic nature of certain things. I liked, I thought they all fit together very well. Um, I liked the, uh, the chemistry between Johnny Depp and um, uh, Gary, Gary Brown, Farmer. Gary, yeah. Gary, Gary Farmer, Gary Farmer. Um, I, I thought they had any of those together. I thought were uh, just incredible. Um yeah, I think there was a lot to like here. Uh, something I, I wish uh, I'd had going into this movie was more familiarity w with uh, the writings of William Blake, uh, because I feel like there was a lot of that in there that I was picking up on it sometimes, other times not so much. Um, for instance, the I, I was doing a little reading after watching it the second time, the scene where he's with the woman who makes the roses. Mm-hmm is that, that apparently that entire scene is Jarmusch's interpretation of a particular William Blake poem. Yeah. Um, which I, I wasn't aware of when I was watching. Um, did, did you, are, are you guys familiar with, enough with William Blake to pick I've, up on? I've things? read the poem no. that it was based on. Um, so I, like that I was familiar with, but I'm not, I'm yeah. by no means a Blake expert. You know, I've read okay. a, a bit here and there. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 I almost feel like it's the sort of thing where it's like, I would like to maybe, seek out some of the more like influential references that were made in the films to maybe understand a little bit more of what I saw at some point. Yeah. I think it's definitely a movie that's both open to a lot of interpretations and just very dense in what it's doing. I mean, yes. there, are, there are references to like a lot of the characters are named after various 20th century, like musicians. Um, yep. There's obviously there are a lot of references to uh, tropes of the Western and specific Westerns. Um, but yeah, also the references to the poetry. I think there's just the movie just has a lot going on, um, and a lot of it probably went over my head on the first viewing. Um, and yet already, I, I like completely fell in love with the movie. So I definitely look forward to watching it 
several more times and sort of digging deeper into what it's what it's doing. Yeah. Sam, what about you? What were some of the, some of the things you loved about the movie? Um, well, something I really enjoyed, at least thinking about during the movie, the only other Jim Jarmusch movie I've seen was uh, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, which I saw in college for class. And it just, the movie, the, the like, the, the tone and the pacing of the movie, I mean, obviously, same director, but they were so similar to me. And I happen to really like that in both movies. And their central character and their journeys, I really, really enjoyed. So basically the big, the biggest thing I took away from this movie is I want to see more, more from Jim Jarmusch. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen ghost dog. Actually, I've seen several of, of Jarmusch's films, but I haven't seen ghost dog. Um, but it's definitely on my to-do list. And especially after dead man, which has sort of rekindled my, my dormant interest in, in Jarmusch. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, think I think of of, of the, his films that I've seen, they all do have this very specific uh, tone and pacing to them, and it's it's, it's almost like I, I, dreamlike is is what I would say. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Especially, think, especially think, in Dead Man, but throughout. Yeah, I think that's what 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 I think Chris called a dreamlike also, and I think that's I think the best way to describe this movie and Ghost Dog. I think they both kind of have that same quality to it, where it's. You know, this is all literally happening, I guess, in the world, but it also feels like a parable, or it, it's all just like a dream. Like, it, it, it doesn't feel like gritty reality to me. No, no, not at all. It's, it's, it's probably one of the most surrealist westerns I've ever seen or ever will see. And, and it, again, just makes me, uh, it, it just put, it's, it's puts into question everything that's happening in front of you. And I, I'm not even, I'm not sure if this if there's anything that you can really take at face value in that movie, but at the same time tells a really well, a really enthralling Western while well, it's doing this. Um, but j something I'd just like to mention right here, where we were talking about some Jim Jarmusch's other movies. Uh, I, I just like to mention the limits of control, which I would say is what Jarmusch did for the Western for um, the spy genre, espionage films. So if you like this and you like those, that, I would definitely recommend checking out the limits of control. Um, limits of control, very good. Other things, Sam, that I would say, uh, really good Jarmusch movies. I like Broken Flowers with Bill Murray a whole lot, um, and it's. I would say, I mean, if we're gonna, I think, I think Jarmusch does have a specific feel of those movies. I think Broken Flowers is probably a little bit less of the dreamlike surrealism, but it also feels a bit like the. It's a Jarmuschian take on the movie Bill Murray's been making for the last ten years. I would say. <laughs> um, and I like it a lot. Uh, also, Stranger Than Paradise, which is one of his early films. I think it's a second movie. Um, and it's very much, very much got the same feel to it. Uh, so both very good, worth checking out. And The Limits of Control as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. This movie definitely piqued my interest. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think, is there, were there, were there any other big things we wanted to talk about? Because I feel like to me, my big takeaway from Dead Man was like, it's it's an incredible movie. There's a lot going on. Um, it's a brilliant western. Uh, but my biggest takeaway was I've got a lot of work to do in terms of digging into it more and figuring out what exactly it's up to because it completely enthralled me on first viewing and it totally got me on its wavelength. But there's just a whole lot there. What do you guys feel about the decision to shoot it in black and white? Um, I, did you know if it, do you know if it was a budget thing? Because I I assumed automatically that it was a budget thing. I don't actually. Um, here, let me see I'm if I can find that, that out. 
Um, I thought it worked. Yeah, I thought it worked really I did well. Too, yeah. I I think it. Well, I think a it it harkens back to a lot of classic westerns. I also think it black and white tends to highlight the starkness of a lot of the uh, the yeah. um, landscape. Is what is the word I was looking for that I couldn't find there for a minute. So I yeah I think it really worked. Um, I also think it in this probably I, I think it almost has a quality of giving a very timeless feel to the movie. I think part of that is the idea that. Johnny Depp ages very, very well over the years, but also just, I feel like I would be hard pressed to tell you that if I, if I had just seen the movie cold, had no knowledge of, um, what year it was filmed or anything like that, I would be hard pressed to really pin down exactly what year this movie came out in. Yeah. I mean, especially like, yeah, if you, if you weren't aware of Johnny Depp, uh, yeah. you know, as an actor, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Um, and I, because I haven't said it yet, I think you said it, Chris. Johnny Depp gives a really good performance here. Um, yeah. This reminded me, as I was watching, I was like, man, this is what it was like when Johnny Depp used to act, like before he just became a caricature machine, um, throwing yeah. out a bunch of weird voices and impressions. Um, and it's it's an incredible performance. It's very uh, it's a very quiet and subdued one, but he does he does a whole lot with the character, and he takes him uh, on a like as Sam said, sort of a a journey uh, of survival and of the lengths he's willing to go to without necessarily being big and over the top in a way a lot of his performances are now. It's it's a great, great performance. Do you miss that, though? I was thinking the whole time I'm watching this, Johnny Depp isn't this kind of actor anymore. I, think I absolutely Johnny, do. Johnny, Johnny Depp, you know, I think Johnny Depp really likes to make, like, I think he's interested in making kind of weird, interesting characters but that's it. I, I'm not sure if he really cares about the rest of the movie, it seems like. Um, because this is another really interesting character, but it's kind of understated in a lot of ways. It's not, you know, he's not doing Keith, he's not doing Keith Richards, and he's not doing Michael Jackson as Willy Wonka. Yeah. I just feel like Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp is a much better actor than what he's done the last... 10 years, basically. Decade, yeah. Yeah, yeah probably. I would um, say, uh, I mean, around the time of Pirates of the Caribbean, I was also in middle school, so bear that in mind. But around the time of that, Johnny Depp was my favorite actor. Um, he, you know, I think a lot of the movies he'd done in the 90s, I think, you know, Edward Scissorhands and even Pirates, like, when he did Pirates, it was a brand new, different thing he was doing. And I thought he was he was a very dynamic actor, but he was also, he was able to give these, these subtle performances like we see in Dead Man. And I don't think he really does that. Uh, anymore. I mean, he hasn't in a while, anyway. Um, and yeah, I absolutely miss it, because he did used to be one of my favorite actors. Um, and it's sort of, over the last decade, he's devolved into someone that's like, oh, this is what he's doing now, okay, like, now he's the Mad Hatter, great, like, cool wig, Johnny, you know, it's like, every time he's in a movie now, it's a fright wig, and it's a, it's a silly voice, and okay. Um, but it's, it's, it's caricatures, like I said. It's it doesn't even really feel like performances anymore. It feels like like a concept that Johnny Depp yeah. has been playing around with. Well, what's like what's always separated Johnny Depp was, you know, I guess Dead Man was I think kind of right in his wheelhouse where he was on a great streak and it was kind of earlier in his career. I guess he kind of took off in the late '80s, early '90s. That he was kind of someone who was seen as he was going to be like this heartthrob type guy, but he would always kind of move away from those type of roles. Right. And I mean, I think, I think dead man, Ed Wood, which came out, I think in 94. So yeah. that was like right around here. 
he would he would do movies that were like really meaty and interesting. I mean, he did Fear and Loathing, I think was probably a couple of years after this came out. You know, he would do really meaty movies that were kind of, they were just more interesting. They were more interesting roles and he was able to pull it off because he is really talented. And maybe now, I mean, he's, I guess he's, I think he's 50 years old now. Maybe he's just not interested in that anymore. Maybe he just, you know, he wants to have fun and do kind of crazy characters and make $20 million a movie. And I mean, Which, I, I like mean, that's he, has, he has every right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he has every right. Just like, you know, with Robert De Niro, he has every right to make, you know, meet the fuckers eight. Here come the grandchildren fuckers or whatever, <laughs> but <laughs> meet the grandchildren. Yeah. I mean, as, as like a movie fan and as a fan of these actors, it's, it's, it's disappointing. It's, it's disappointing knowing they have all this talent and they're like, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do what I do. Cause it's, fun and easy and i'll get paid and on the one on the human on the human side i could totally understand that i could definitely see myself if i was in a similar position you know maybe wanting to do just something fun for the fun of it and for the money but on the other hand as the film fan i'm like oh you're so much better than this you can do you could be doing so many more interesting things there are all these movies that johnny depp isn't making which is disappointing and we saw with robert de niro uh in the in um Silver Linings Playbook. He's still a good actor. He didn't forget how to act or anything. It's it's choices, and he's still good. And I know Johnny Depp is still good too, because I mean I've liked him in, you know I liked him in Sweeney Todd. You know he's just still he's still Johnny Depp. He can still act. So yeah, he's capable of it. I just wish he would do it more. I'm looking now at his filmography, and I'm looking at the the string of films he did in the 90s, and it's like, there are a lot of incredible performances there, and a lot of them aren't just the quirk factor. Like, I mean, he did Benny and June, which was quirky. I think Edward Scissorhands can now be considered what's like the traditional Johnny Depp performance, but at the time was very different for him. He had a great run of movies there for a while, and then you hit, uh, you know, somewhere right around, like, Pirates, really. And even after Pirates, he's doing it for a while. It's really, like, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is the line, because you get that, and then it's like, more Pirates movies. Um... You know, Public Enemies, which was meh. So yeah, like it's the last the last second he's been disappointing me. Hopefully, he will uh, eventually not again. That would be yeah. nice. <laughs> uh, I'm looking, yeah. And there's Pirates of the Caribbean Five is in his to do list, so fans of the franchise can look forward to that. Uh, did anyone see Pirates Four while we're talking about that? Yeah, I've I've only seen Pirates Two, so I heard Pirates One is worth it though. Pirates 1? Yeah. You mean the original? You haven't seen the original? I have not. I've only seen oh, wow. Pirates 2. Pirates, yeah, Pirates of the Caribbean is actually like really solid. Um, yeah, that's that's a sad example of a great, a really, really solid movie being kind of uh, adulterated by its sequels. I even, you know, I liked, like, 2 was fine, 3 was fine. I wasn't actively angry. I didn't see 4 because I just stopped caring. But, yeah, <laughs> I was but, actively angry about 2. Two was like three hours long, and it was just Johnny Depp like running, flailing his arms. It was not good. You should go go, go back and see the first one, Sam, because it's really solid. It's like yeah. that's what everyone tells me. That's it's a great it's a great summer movie. I mean, I think it was on my top ten list for the year it came out. Like, it's a very good movie. Um, also, what they're doing an Alice in Wonderland sequel that upsets me. <laughs> oh, that was embarrassing. I remember I watched that with you, right, Jordan? And... Yeah, we saw it. We saw it together, and it was like that's a travesty. I left that movie like. That was what, that's one of those movies where I left, like, just seething at you. <laughs> yeah, you were very, very angry. It was really terrible, though. So. I'm, all, I'm also, like, a huge Lewis Carroll fan and a huge uh, Alice in Wonderland fan, so I felt like I had been, like, 
beaten. Like, this movie just, like, kept punching me in the face. Um, I think the dance, though, the dance was, like, slicing your throat. That's yeah, like, like, it was basically, like, Johnny Depp giving me the finger uh, for five minutes. Or I mean, the dance lasts probably, like, 45 seconds. But for me, it lasted six and a half hours, and it was the worst six and a half hours of my life. Um, so, yeah, we've gotten a little off topic, but <laughs> Johnny Depp is an actor. Um, I hope he starts, you know, doing that again at some point. Maybe he will Ranger. I haven't heard that he does. Um, in fact, I've heard it's what we expect from Johnny Depp performances at this point. But when I see it, I'll let you guys know how he is, and maybe he'll be awesome. For now, we should probably wrap this up. Uh, before we wrap up Movie Club, obviously, we need to announce the next movie. We've been trying to get one of the ladies to uh, appear on one of these podcasts so they can pick a movie. Rachel hasn't picked in forever, and Ashley's never been around to pick. Uh, unfortunately, neither of them are here tonight, as you may have noticed. Um, they haven't just been the silent contributor. So we're going to kick things back to you, Sam, and you're going to pick the next Movie Club movie for us. All right. Well, I have two lined up in case you guys, if, in case either of you guys have seen my first pick. Because I do like it when none of us have seen the movie, even though this worked out very well for a movie that Chris had seen. Um, so my first pick, and let me know if you guys have seen it, is Undefeated. Yay, uh, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. There you go. Undefeated was the 2011 uh, Best Documentary winner, and it is the story of a inner-city high school football team, because I love to push sports on you guys whenever I can. And... I want to see if it kind of lives up to the to its Oscar-winning name. Plus, we haven't so it, done a documentary yet on Movie Club. So. Yes, I also, I also wanted to do a documentary, because documentaries are fun. People should see more documentaries. Agreed. So th for those of you playing along at home, the next Movie Club movie will be Undefeated. Uh, it is on Netflix Instant, I assume, Sam? It is, yes. It's on in Instant, so watch it instantly if you'd like. Watch it however you'd like. We won't restrict now, Netflix Instant. Another warning, there is, there is also a documentary called Sarah Palin, The Undefeated, which is not the best and uh, best documentary Oscar-winning uh, movie. It is, in fact, a, from what I hear, a very, very shitty, shitty documentary in giant quotation marks about Sarah Palin. We're not really interested in that. But if you want to watch a two-hour movie about Sarah Palin never having lost anything in her life, I can't think of anything. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I don't know um, a single thing she's lost. Then you can check that one out. But we are watching Undefeated from 2011 about a high school football team. Nothing about Sarah ready. Palin. <laughs> Nothing about Sarah Palin if all goes to plan. Yeah, unless we all forget. and so we Chris and I come here and we're like, that Sarah Palin movie was great. <laughs> so we're watching the Sarah Palin one, right? <laughs> Um, so for those of you playing along at home, watch Undefeated. We will be talking about it on the podcast, uh, what, two or three podcasts from now, as we usually do, two to four podcasts from now. When it comes again, we'll let you know, uh, but get to it, and that'll be the next one. So before we close down the show, as always, you can visit the website at reviewbenamed.com. You can follow us on Twitter at reviewbenamed. You can email us at reviewbenamed at gmail.com. Um... As I've said before, you could try yelling really loudly, but I don't think that's going to work, so probably don't do that one. Uh, otherwise, get in contact with us somehow. Let us know what you're thinking. Um, we'd love to hear from you. And before we close out, I guess we should award the Rachel Tardiff Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. Uh, an increasingly useless gesture that I continue to throw out there. 
Um, maybe someday we'll get rid of the Red Star Memorial Award once we can all agree to forget Rachel. But I was going to say, we can get rid of it when we can raise Rachel from the dead. Yes. Which I don't think we can do. <laughs> no, I, we've tried, clearly. I tried tonight. I tried to get her on the podcast. Did not work. I have put hours of research into this. And I know. We were had, we had a seance and everything. Yeah. Chris has the, the body, like, just tied to a table and keeps, like, pumping electricity uh, into it constantly. Chris, like, you, that, that isn't science. That doesn't do anything. <laughs> You're going to take that off my hand at some point, right? Like... I mean, me or someone. Like, maybe the authorities <laughs> will take it off your hands. <laughs> I just, I just like, they did that, like, you've got, like, a lamp, like, cord plugged into her. <laughs> it's as much as electricity as I can reroute. <laughs> just, like, you just turn on the light switch whenever you uh, walk into the room and it's pumping electricity into Rachel, and you're like, eh, maybe that's good enough. Um, but, yes, the Rich Tardiff Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. This one goes to Bob Odenkirk, who clearly will win out in this Saul Goodman thing should the show go to series. He will take his character from Breaking Bad and become the lead of a new series. And, you know, should it be successful, be an even bigger winner. So, Bob, we're big fans of yours. We love your work on Breaking Bad and in pretty much everything else you've done. Uh, come on down, collect your trophy and small cash prize. Congratulations. And with that, we will close out the show for the week. Um, thanks for listening and have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye.